Well, Ian, welcome to the Grok Science Show. You've recently written a book called Curious, about human curiosity. I have, yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So why don't you start by telling us about the different types of curiosity? Sure. When, uh, when I started researching this subject, I knew I wanted to write a book about the trait of curiosity because it just seems to be an increasingly valuable and powerful trait in today's world. And it's so central to who we are as human beings. And when I started reading up on the academic literature on it, I realized that there were, broadly speaking, two different types of curiosity that have been identified again and again by psychologists. And they're called diversive curiosity and epistemic curiosity. So they're, they're two quite technical terms, but the meaning of them is fairly straightforward. So diversive curiosity is the desire for new information. It's the hunger for novelty. It's the itch that makes you go, oh, I need to know this now. I need to know the answer, the answer to that question now. Um, or I, I need to see what's around this corner. I need to click on this icon that's flashing on my screen to see what happens. So that kind of impulsive, in the moment, curiosity that kind of seizes you and makes you do something, that's diversive curiosity. Mm-hmm. And then the second type of curiosity, which is sort of deeper and, and longer term, is epistemic curiosity and that is the desire to learn and accumulate knowledge. So diversive curiosity is a kind of fire starter of curiosity, it's the advanced truths of curiosity. It's, it's what gets you off the beaten track to begin with right? and, and gets you out of your comfort zone and makes you go, oh I need to know this over here or, or so I've suddenly become interested in this. But unless it develops into this longer term, more effortful curiosity, more, more kind of consciously focused and concentrated curiosity, which is epistemic curiosity, then actually it can be kind of transient and fleeting. So epistemic curiosity is what happens to diversity curiosity when it grows up, essentially. <laughs> um, when it turns into this kind of long-term and often you know, lifelong desire to really explore a topic in detail and, and great depth and really become an expert in it. And so the relationship between those two types of curiosity is really kind of at the heart of the book. So you mentioned just there, and in your book, you suggest that curiosity is actually in decline. Uh, What do you mean by this? I don't quite say it's in decline, Um, but I do suggest that some of the ways in which we use technology put it under under threat. Okay. But if we respond to it in the right way, we can actually increase our levels of curiosity as individuals and as a society. Technology, and and of course we're talking about the way we use the web um, and digital technology generally, is both the best and the worst thing that's happened to, to curiosity. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's, it's the, the, the internet is this incredible tool for, for exploration, um, for finding out new information, for learning and so on. But on the other hand, it's also a great tool if you are incurious. Uh, it's actually a great tool if you're lazy, you know, because it can get you to an answer very quickly without you having to make much effort. It can also, of course, just distract you from any kind of learning situation whatsoever, you know, because it's so compulsively entertaining in all, in all sorts of ways. One of the arguments of, of my book is that we need to consciously orient our use of the web and the internet and technology generally to feed our epistemic curiosity. Because the internet is this incredible machine for generating diversive curiosity. We all know that, you know, this constantly kind of flashing, beeping machine talking to us all the time. It's in our pocket. Um, it's, it's in the air around us. And we all know that feeling of being constantly distracted and constantly stimulated, but not really, you know, learning or, or having a kind of sustaining experience. And so I, I'm really kind of saying, great, let it stimulate our diversity curiosity, but use the internet in ways that feed your long-term learning capacity. That is your epistemic curiosity. 
So you mentioned that most people are born with some curiosity, but do you believe that some people are born more curious than others? I mean, what what makes somebody a curious person or not? I mean, it's a great question. There isn't a, a sort of definitive answer to this. Certainly, you know, nobody's done any really good work on, on the, the genetics of curiosity yet. There is some interesting work on what makes for curious household, um, and therefore, you know, for curious children. So there was some interesting research that I quote in the book where a psychologist recorded conversations in different households between families and their children and then assessed the levels of curiosity of a child. And the, the basic distinction they made was that the, in, both, in both sets of households, the parents were answering the questions of their children, because we know that children ask a lot of questions. But in the household where the children grew up really curious, the parents were asking questions back. Hmm. So, you know, they weren't just saying, you know, the child would ask, ask a question, so what, why is the sky blue? And instead of just giving an explanation or, or saying, you know, I, I'm, I don't know, they'd engage them in, in a kind of back and forth. Well, I don't know. I think it might be this. What do you think? And they would kind of work out some sort of hypothesis together. And that seemed to inculcate the habits of curiosity more than anything else. Um, And I think that's really interesting. Again, you think back to the way we use the Internet. We often use the Internet just as a source of answers. If you start to think about it more as sort of great questions, you know, what's what's the next question I can ask on this, right? And then every bit of everything that you learn begins another journey because you you start to think, well, okay, well, that that opens up another kind of area of exploration. And indeed, you know, there are people that that argue that that's, that's, that's how science works. That science is basically the constant expansion of our ignorance. <laughs> um, and that what, scienti- what scientists do is they're constantly discovering new and exciting areas of, of what we don't know, of our unknowns. And that, that, that makes you think about the kind of process of learning and knowledge and questions and answers in, in a very different way. On that topic, is there a connection between curiosity and creativity? Yes. Um, I, I think an absolutely fundamental connection. Somebody said to me as I was researching the book, it's a very short step from why to, to why not. When you start kind of posing these questions about, you know, why things are as they are, you then start to imagine alternative worlds and alternative universes and alternative ideas. Um, but the, the fundamental kind of wellspring of creativity is making unexpected connections between different bits of knowledge. So kind of smashing two, two ideas or two ways of thinking together and coming up with something new. Let's take a scientific form of creativity, right? So the way that Darwin kind of landed upon the theory of evolution was that he, he took his immense knowledge of biology and of life forms and then brought it together with a theory of population, kind of Malthusian theory of, of um, how populations grow. Which, you know, no other you know, biologist was, was kind of thinking in those terms, but he had this kind of enormous conceptual range. And you see that over and over again in, in, in science. Um, and of course, you see it in art, but it's the very basis of, of art. So Picasso took a ancient African Etruscan art forms and kind of smashed them together with impressionist art and, you know, the kind of modern ways and modern perspectives and all sorts of things to come up with this new form. And you see it in great business. So Apple is a prime example of a, a brand that was created out of several different types of knowledge, right? So, so Steve Jobs has this intense kind of, had this kind of intense epistemic 
curiosity. He was really interested in technology, obviously, but he's also really interested in, in how business works, how marketing works. He was really interested in the counterculture. You know, he's immersed in the, in the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. He was, you know, really into calligraphy and his, his the course he did on calligraphy as a young man turned out to influence the design of the fonts that we see on the Mac and therefore all computers today. But again, you know, he, he blended this kind of cultural humanist approach with this kind of more classical, kind of that straightforward technological approach and made this amazing, you know, these amazing new things. So whether you're looking at science or business or art, creativity comes from this, this bringing together, uh, making, uh, making unusual or unexpected connections between, between things. And of course, you know, unless you have the capacious breadth and depth of knowledge about lots of different areas and lots of different things, then you're much less likely to make those connections. For people listening to just be able to ask themselves, what are ways that you can tell whether you're a curious person or you're just kind of an averagely curious person? Well, I think probably if, you know, if you're listening to this show, if you're into this show, you probably are a curious person always. Uh-huh. And in a way, maybe the question is, how can I tell if I'm becoming incurious? <laughs> you know, I think in my own life, I, I can see myself. I'm going, well, you know, I could read this this book about the history of the First World War, and and actually, <laughs> I, I I am quite interested in that, and I'd quite like to know. But then again, time is short. Do, do I really need to know that? Isn't there stuff I should be reading that's like really relevant to my book, to my <laughs> to my job? That you know, I, I should read that first, right? And I, I, I sort of push that instinct aside and say, no, do you know what? Pick up the book about the First World War or, or whatever it is and read that. Because actually it does things to your mind, you know, at a, even at a kind of subterranean level that enrich it and, and actually may end up making you better at your job. You know, it may not, but it, it'll, it'll enrich your life in all, in all sorts of ways. You know, reminding yourself to get off the beaten track and to get interested in things not for some straightforwardly functional reason, but because they're interesting to you, um, you know, that, that does actually serve a deeper and wider purpose, um, and it's a noble one. So, you know, go for it. How do you think schools today are either nurturing or stifling curiosity? It's a big question, and it's one I actually I, I do discuss some length in the book. First of all, teachers and schools have a really difficult job. So I'm not one of these people who says, you know, ah, schools are killing curiosity. We should just get rid of them or reinvent them or whatever. <laughs> there are a lot of good schools out there doing, you know, a lot of good teachers doing a lot of good stuff. And a lot of stuff that, that schools do is great. By the way, you know, when people say they, kids can get frustrated or bored at school, like, okay, that's true. But any process of learning, of really absorbing knowledge, involves effort and it involves failure. Right, and, and error. And that brings with it frustration. And if you're a kid, that's really hard to, to handle. So the first thing I think to, to understand about schools and schooling is that kids are never going to float through school enjoying every minute. And actually, if they are, they're probably not learning very much. <laughs> and it's been shown again and again, actually, that, that when the process of inspecting lessons, right, when you send the inspectors into schools to observe lessons, is very erratic and actually doesn't match well with data on, on educational outcomes. And the reason we get it wrong intuitively is that when we see a teacher having a great time with a class, 
you know, and all the kids are really kind of being very actively engaged and uh, they're all kind of doing stuff with the teacher and they all have big smiles on their faces. That might be great, but, but they may not be learning anything at all. <laughs> maybe they are, maybe they are, but you can't tell by how much someone is enjoying something, you know, how much they're, they're learning it. So there's the first point, like enjoyment does not like actually correlate with learning. And actually learning stuff can be really hard work and sometimes it's not particularly enjoyable but it always pays off for that person. It ends up, they end up feeling glad of it, right, or nearly always. The second thing is that some of the accusations that are made about teaching in schools and the system generally are undoubtedly true. There's a the problem with teaching to the test, right? So just saying that we need to learn this, we need you to pass this test, and here are the answers to the question of, of, you know, just to use the First World War again, you know, what what caused the First World War? Um, well, you know, it's these three things. And you've got to do these three things when you do the test, so, you know, don't argue. <laughs> okay, now, I, schools do feel compelled to do that, right? Because there's so much pressure on, on, on them and on the kids to, to get through these tests. But that kills curiosity. And, and it kills it partly because fear is the enemy of curiosity. Right. Insecurity is the enemy of curiosity. So if these kids are scared of not passing the test, and the teachers are scared of them not passing the test, then they will shut down conversations around uh, around these subjects and they make them much less interesting than than they, they could be. Second, related to that is this question of time. You know, if they don't have enough time, if teachers feel they don't have enough time to explore these subjects, then they won't get into the kind of back and forth kind of dialogue that really kind of nurtures curiosity. Sometimes, you know, you hear people say, oh, we shouldn't be teaching kids facts, right? We don't need to teach them facts. They, they can look stuff up. And, and I think that's, that's really dangerous. And actually, because of what I was talking about, the way that curiosity kind of informs creativity, kids and everyone, need, we need to learn facts. We need knowledge because actually the bigger your database of knowledge, the more and more unexpected connections you're going to make between those different things. So I say, you know, learn as many facts as you can. But the responsibility on the, on the educator, on the teacher, is to make those facts interesting. Right? And great teachers do that instinctively because they are interested. Um, you know, great teachers know their stuff. They know about the first world. They, they know all the debates and interesting reason, you know, arguments about how it started and why it started and whose fault it was and so on. And they naturally make that part of the lesson. But if the teachers and the children are just too short of time and too pressured and too scared, to really get into that, then they'll just go through the motions and curiosity dies. I think that's so interesting that you brought up fear and stress as the enemies of curiosity because it does have this leisure quality about it. I think that's almost a stigma of curiosity. Yeah, you're right. I mean, absolutely right. And you see it in schools, you, you see it at work, you know, in the workplace generally because we make a fetish out of efficiency. So we're absolutely, you know, culturally we're inclined to say, you know, unless you are absolutely working at your maximum capacity all the time in the service of the goals of the company, then you're not doing your job. Okay, so, so that means that you're not supposed to work on projects or to ask questions or to do some research on things that you haven't specifically been instructed to work on. And that means that, you know, you're not allowed to be, you're not allowed to be curious. Because curiosity is a kind of, it is about getting off the, the, the beaten path. And, it, you know, by definition, it's, it's often about getting into things, even though there isn't like a specific reason to do so. But the fact is that really great, innovative and creative companies understand that 
it's actually the curiosity of their employees that feeds their innovation. You know, they encourage them to, to take some of those diversions and some of those left turns and to, to feed that into, into the work of the company. So now that I know you're interested in history, <laughs> yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the times and the reasons why curiosity might have been stifled at certain times during our history? Yeah, curiosity has had a very sort of up and down reputation uh, over the years. Um, we, we're fairly positive about it now. I mean, I, I don't think we, we kind of understand it or grasp it fully, but, but if you say somebody's a really curious person, that's generally a compliment, right? Okay. <laughs> but it wasn't always that way. And you didn't have to go back far, go back maybe sort of three, four hundred years to find a time when actually it wasn't cool to be curious. <laughs> If you were living in, in Europe in the, the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, there was a strong prohibition against curiosity. Curiosity was seen by the authorities, and that really kind of meant the church in particular, as a vice. Because what you were allowed to know, what you were meant to know, was what the priest told you, <laughs> you know, to, to, to really kind of simplify this. Trying to find out things just because you were interested in, the, in them was, was sort of awfully self-indulgent and possibly dangerous. And actually, because these were authoritarian societies, and in any kind of authoritarian culture and, and society, curiosity is stamped on. People in North Korea today are not allowed to be curious. And any sign of it is absolutely kind of is absolutely stamped on. And we only started, you know, in the West, that is, we, we only started approving of curiosity and, and talking about it as, as a good thing come at the advent of the printing press and the spread of the scientific um, revolution and the Enlightenment. By the 18th century, it started to become actually really fashionable to be curious about the world, to run your own scientific experiment, home, to, to debate these things in, in the coffee houses, the nature of matter, what was in the air. From that point onwards, we realized collectively, I think, that in a kind of more open society where we value innovation and the, the clash of ideas and progress, then curiosity is absolutely essential to that. But up until that time, it was seen as a really... And I, th I think some of the... There is, Still a strain of that, that as, he, as he suggested in relation to, to the workplace, there's still a strain of that disapproval of it as this, why, why are you asking questions about that? You know, or why are you getting interested in that when you should be focusing on whatever it is you're supposed to be focusing on? Um, and indeed that phrase, curiosity killed the cat, which is this kind of odd phrase, this is, I think, a kind of a hangover from, from those days when, you know, it was a kind of warning. Yeah, it sometimes is kind of at odds with self-preservation. You especially see that in kids, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, you absolutely see that in, in children. And actually, you quite seriously see it on a list of risk factors for arson attacks and children who carry out really dangerous acts. You know, one, one of the things that psychologists who specialize in that look for is a kind of excessive curiosity. You know, they kind of say, well, some, some of the kids like set fire to things just to see what it looks like. Hmm. <laughs> um, and so, it, you know, there is still a connection to, to curiosity, but obviously most of us are able to accommodate that, that, <laughs> that danger as, as we grow older with the help of our parents. Well, maybe you can leave us with one tip on how to be a more curious person. Yeah, so I would say always look for the mystery in things. So the, in the book, I talk about this dis distinction people have made between mysteries and puzzles. So a puzzle, a puzzle is something that, that has a definite answer. So it's like a kind of, almost like a math problem, you know, six plus four. It, it, it's
is a puzzle because you know the answer is is ten. Or um, uh, it actually came from national security this this distinction in the first place. So you know in the Cold War there were lots of puzzles. So like how many missiles uh, of a certain class does the Soviet Union have? Right. We don't know the answer, but we know there is an answer. So that's a puzzle. And a mystery, mystery is something that without a definite answer, it's a kind of deeper kind of question. So a mystery might be, you know, why, why does the universe exist? Um, a mystery, or in national security terms, it's like, you know, why uh, is militant Islam on the rise? And that's a much more difficult question, and a much more broader, more complex, more unpredictable question than how many missiles do they have. In broad terms, it's the kind of question that will sustain you on, on a lifetime of curiosity. If you find a puzzle in any kind of field that interests you, and you go, I want to know the answer to that, ask yourself, okay, so what mystery does that connect to? What, what's the deeper kind of why question that this, this brings me to? And what journeys, you know, will, will that send me off on? Yeah, great. Okay, well, is there any last thing you want to say about about this topic or your book? I think the answer that, that somebody gave on a Reddit forum to a great question. It's very, I quote it in the book, it's very instructive about our relationship to technology and, and curiosity. So the question that somebody asked on Reddit was, if you could tell somebody who was alive 100 years ago something about today that would really blow their mind and amaze them, what would it be? And the most popular answer was somebody who said, I would tell them that I have in my pocket a device that can access the entirety of information known to man. And I use it to look at cats and get into arguments <laughs> with strangers. And, you know, I think, like, you have to understand those, both those things are amazing. Um, and unless we use, uh, you know, consciously con use technology to cultivate our epistemic curiosity, then ultimately we'll will just allow our curiosity to be killed by cats. <laughs> I should have seen that's where you were going with that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian, for being on the show today. You are very welcome. I enjoyed it. For more from Ian Leslie, you can check out his book, Curious. Um, this includes more tips on how to become a more curious person and more about the way curiosity develops. Thanks for joining us. Once again, you've been listening to The Grok Science Show. For more from us, tune in next week or check out our blog at grox.net. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>